All right, we're just about to get to the sermon. Uh, Pastor JD will continue our series in the Gospel of John. Before he comes up here, let me read the scripture passage for today's sermon. Uh, we'll be, we're in John still, John chapter 8, and it's John 8, verse 48 through 59. It's John 8, 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it and he is to judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you've not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jew said to him, you're not 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to him, said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hit himself and went out of the temple. Word of the Lord. All right, people of God, get ready for the man of God with the word of God. That's quite the announcement there, Patrick. Thank you. It's good to be with you guys. You already have Bibles opened. I'm looking forward to getting into it. And as Patrick said, last time we had an Acts chapter two move of the spirit and uh, these tents began to lift up. It was a, a very Pentecostal moment. Uh, and we had a gust of wind come in that was just out of nowhere. It was, it was quite intense. So for those of you that were not with us, it, it looks like we're going to be pretty calm today uh, on the wind, but uh, no, no fear of the tent collapsing on us this time. Uh, I am looking forward to jumping into the text with you guys. I would like to open us in prayer before we jump in. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we love that you have done so many things that have reminded us of who you are. The sun that shines down upon us that we can feel this glorious morning that began on the crisp side and now is warming up as we're sort of thawing out and we're experiencing the warmth of your sun. You do that, God, because you want to communicate something about you. And God, as we look up at your mountains, if, if we could see them over behind me, God, as we see the, the mountains off in the distance, the San Gabriel Mountains, the San Bernardino Mountains, God, as we look off in the distance, we see the faithfulness of mountains that have remained from our perspective forever and ever. And we see and you say, look and see my faithfulness because I am like those mountains. We see the beauty of the green grass. We see the blueness of the sky. We see all of these things that we cannot help but be drawn up in our hearts to say, there is a God in heaven who made these things. 
He made the colors. He made nature. He made the laws of nature. And so, God, we worship you this morning, God, and we stir our hearts up now because though we have those wonderful things of revelation of who you are, we have something even greater. We have words and we have specifically words that are telling us about the greatest revelation that you ever gave us when you sent your son from heaven to live as a human being on this earth and not only to live, but to die. And so God, as we recognize and think about those things, I pray that our hearts would be stirred up to see that we are looking at you yourself as we open up your word this morning. So God, help our hearts to be in line with the majesty of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me center my... uh, let me center this here. We've been working through uh, the I am statements of Jesus. So for those, anybody that's new this morning, this is about our 10th sermon in this series. The, the, the series is meant to very, very deliberately to go right to the source of what Jesus himself says about himself. That was a bit redundant, but we're going right to the source where Jesus says, here is who I am. And he says things like, I am the bread of life. And then the the Jews that he was in dialogue with, the the people of ancient Israel 2,000 years ago who were back and forth having discussions with him, they oftentimes would dispute his claims. They would come after him. They would insult him. They would do all kinds of things to try to, to demean him. And yet he would continue to teach. He would continue out of mercy to teach them and to tell them more of who he was and who he is. And we are the beneficiaries of that as we get to see as the, uh, uh, is the, the John, the apostle, John, the one who was the disciple at the time was listening to this and wrote down Jesus' words so that we can understand who Jesus is. And the gospel of John is really that. It's really the simplicity of John saying, I want you to know who he was. And I want you to know in plain language who he was. So I'm going to preserve his very words about who he was. And so that's what we get into. And we're, we're now in our 10th week. We're going to continue this all the way through the school year. But for now, we are, we are continuing, and here today, we see Jesus make another I am statement. And as you're going to see, and as we have seen before, this is just the words, I am. This is not, I am the bread of life. This is just, I am. Now, to some of us who maybe are not familiar with the Bible, that's going to be a strange statement. Who says that? Who says, I am? What does that even mean to say, I am? But it meant something very specific to the Jews in that day. And Jesus is saying something very specific about himself. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to focus. We have a a bit of a long text. So I want to break down so that you guys understand where we're going to stop and focus on our text this morning. There's going to be three places that we're really going to focus on and stop. And so if you're taking notes, uh, you might want to mark these down. It is John 8.52. And listen to the claim that Jesus makes in John 8.52. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Well, they said that because Jesus himself, just up there a little bit further, said, if you truly, truly, I say to you in verse one, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. There's a claim that Jesus is making 
about himself. We're going to focus on that today. There's there's two more we're going to focus on. The next one is in John 8:56. Push your eyes down on that verse. John 8:56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, Jesus said. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, there's a second claim that Jesus is making, that Abraham, the great Jewish patriarch, saw Jesus' day. What does that mean? And we're going to stop and focus on that because it's another claim that Jesus is making. And then... Just two verses later in John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And we're going to stop and we're going to try to understand why was it that then in the next verse, the Jews bent down to pick up stones, to throw stones at him and to kill him. Whatever he said right there, it was so significant to them. It was so, I say, blasphemous to them that they decided that he was worthy of death because of those words. So there are three claims in our text this morning that we are going to stop and we're going to spend time looking at. So here's what I want to do. I want to give us our main point so that you guys have taking notes can get our main point. And then I want to jump right in to John chapter eight, starting in our, the first verses of our text. Here's the main point. Jesus gives eternal life promised from long ago because he is God trust and obey for everlasting joy. Okay. There's it's a bit of a long one. Okay. Let's try that one more time. Jesus gives eternal life promised from long ago because he is God trust and obey for everlasting joy. Let's look at John chapter eight. And I'm going to read verses 48 to 52. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Now, we have been following this dialogue that Jesus has been having with the Jews. And basically for the last, oh, I don't know, five or six weeks, we have just been this back and forth. Jesus would speak, the Jews would speak. Jesus would speak, the Jews would speak. And it's something I want you guys to know about this Jewish crowd that's talking to him. Some of them are believing. Some of them are actually putting their trust in Jesus. In fact, if you go back a few verses, it says, and many believed in him when he began to speak those words. But there's a whole other group of people in the crowd that are mocking and they're, and they're, they're essentially blaspheming against him. They're speaking harsh words against him. And so he, we've seen this dialogue back and forth and we've seen the Jews get especially nasty, haven't we? We've seen them go to a, let's just say to a personal level in their attack of Jesus. For instance, in John 8, 19, just a few verses back in a previous week when we saw this, they say to Jesus, where's your father? And we talked about this. There was rumors about Jesus being an illegitimate son. There were rumors about him being born in sexual immorality. And so they say, where's your father? And it was a subtle reference to that illegitimacy of Jesus's birth. And Jesus responds with this at that time, you know, neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So Jesus would respond right back with truth. 
They come at him with an insult. He comes right back at them with truth. And then later on in, in John 8, 41, the Jews say, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And again, they're referencing that rumored illegitimacy of Jesus's birth. Where was Joseph in the picture when Mary is with child? There were rumors about this birth. And again, Jesus responds with this, devastating, but it is truth. Here's what he says. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Okay, now things are getting spicy because both back, both the Jews are attacking him, but Jesus is coming right back at them. And he's telling them, you're doing the things your father does. You are a representative of him. The, why am I pointing up? Him, the devil, <laughs> right? You're a representative of him because you're doing the very things that he does. Now, today, in our passage, we are going to see the Jews in full troll mode. This is the point where you've lost the argument and you just you are just outright attacking you're not even trying to subtly hide it anymore you're just you're just being blatant with the things that you're saying similar to trolls on the internet so because they they're not subtle anymore and the more truth jesus gives them the more they hate him so the more he continues to speak truth to them the more their hearts are just shriveling up and they're going i can't handle this truth that you're giving me and so they're going to respond with anger here is what they claim. Verse 48. You are a Samaritan and you have a demon. Okay. You are a Samaritan and you have a demon. Okay. So we've gone from hints about Jesus' illegitimate conception. Okay. As a baby, we've gone from that to you have a demon. You are straight out demon possessed is what they're saying. But they also said, you are a Samaritan, which to a Jew was about as bad as having a demon. It, it, it was about the same thing. To call someone a Samaritan and then to call them a demon, well, maybe it was a little worse to call them a demon, but not much. Okay, so they are, they are truly outright insulting him. They're reaching down into their bag of the worst possible insults they could hurl, and they're throwing them at him at this point. What does it mean for a Jew to call someone a Samaritan. Well, we have to think, we have to go back into history for a second. We have to look a little bit about who the Samaritans were. What does it mean? And, and why did the Samaritans hate the Jews or do the Jews hate the Samaritans so badly? Well, Samaria, which is where the Samaritans uh, were from and are from, there's actually some that still live today, is a region in ancient Israel, that's known today, if you looked on a map today, it would be part of the West Bank, okay? So if you, if you were to look today, you would see just west of the Jordan River, north of Jerusalem, and south of Galilee, there is this hill country, okay? Israel is kind of, it, it's an interesting geography. It actually has like a spine running down the middle of it, and the spine is a mountain range, there's a mountain range that begins in Jerusalem, and as that, the hills of Jerusalem get taller and taller and taller, and it, they just run up the center of Israel, okay? Israel kind of north and south, and then right down the center is this mountain range. That hill country in the middle, north of Jerusalem, south of Galilee, is called Samaria. 
It was called that because some of you might recall that there was a point in Israel's history where the kingdom of Israel divided. And they divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And some of you may recall that the southern kingdom at times followed God and at times didn't follow God. But the northern kingdom never followed God. Their rebellion away from the southern kingdom, they, none of their kings ever actually followed up and said, we repent, we're going to turn back. They began to lead the kingdom of Israel, the whole of Israel, into greater and greater degrees of idolatry and sin. And the north was part of Samaria. That was where Samaria was. It was the north basically started just north of Jerusalem and it went up. And so Samaria was part of the northern kingdom and it was named by a particular northern king named Omri. You can read about him if you want to go into second Kings or second Chronicles. You can read about Omri. He was not a good king, just like every northern king was not a good king. And he named that region because that was where he wanted his capital city to be. He named the capital city Samaria. And so the whole region around it became known as Samaria. Now, God in judging the Northern kingdom specifically, but in judging really the whole of Israel sent a massive empire that was outside of Israel to come in and attack Israel. And they were the Assyrian empire. The Assyrians came in with their massive armies and they came and they first took out Northern Israel. They first took out, they started basically at the top and they worked their way down and they completely uh, ransacked, destroyed, took over the entire Northern kingdom gone from that day forward. The Northern kingdom was never to be seen again. And then they came for the Southern kingdom and some of you know the story. We covered it when we were looking at the book of Isaiah. There, there was a king named Hezekiah at the time, and he laid down the letter that the king of Assyria had written to him, which was said, surrender, you have no chance, your God cannot save you. And Hezekiah lays the letter down in the temple of God, and he says, God, this is what they're saying about you. Will you please save us? And at that time, the entire nation, uh, uh, the entire army is surrounding Jerusalem. The Assyrian army is surrounding them. And, and Hezekiah is in there praying. And then finally, we see uh, in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord descends and wipes out the entire Assyrian army that is assembled and encamped around Jerusalem. They wake up in the morning and there are dead bodies everywhere. Because the Lord heard the prayer of the Southern King Hezekiah, as he said, God, please don't let them take us out. And ultimately the Assyrian King had to retreat. He had to pull back and he himself was killed by his own sons in the, in the temple that he was worshiping of his own God. It's a crazy story, but this sets up, sets up now the hatred between the Jews who were still in the South and the Sumerians, because what Assyria did is they did something that we call today cultural genocide. That's a terrible word, but it is in fact a description of what the Assyrians were trying to do. What they would do is they would take the Jews living in, a, in, in that area of Samaria and they would forcibly transplant them and scatter them all over the Assyrian empire. 
never allowing them to be in large enough groups to actually keep their culture. They would force them then to intermarry with the people that were around them. And they would bring in Assyrians, Assyrians from other parts of the empire, and they would bring them in to live in Samaria. Okay, so essentially what they're doing is they're saying, we want to eradicate your culture by getting completely rid of you so that you have no chance of keeping your worship or, or, your, or the particulars of who you are as a people. We're going to so scatter you that it, within a few generations, you're going to be gone. It's called cultural genocide and it still happens today. So the Assyrians did this and they brought in these, these people that were not worshipers of God at all. And guess what? The Jews that were living there in Assyria, the ones that were left, intermarried with them. So when Israel comes back from its, its exile, I'm going to skip forward a few hundred years. When it comes back from its exile in Babylon and they finally get to have their nation again and they pro- finally get to set up their, their kingdom in Jerusalem, they looked at the Sumerians that were still there and they said, you're half-breeds. You have, you have lost your Jewishness because you have interbred with other people that are not Jewish. So we hate you because you don't follow our religion anymore. And it was probably true. They probably didn't follow God anymore. And instead, they sort of invented this pseudo-Judaism that some still practice today. And so to the Jews, the Sumerians were not Jewish. They were not really Jewish blood. They were half-breeds and they were not worshipers of the true God. And they, and they basically just couldn't stand them. So much so that to be a worshiping Jew, you had to go down to Jerusalem from the north in order to go to the feasts three times a year. We talked about these three feasts you had to go to. You would avoid going through Samaria. And believe me, you guys, it was a long circuitous route to get around Samaria. You had to go way outside of your way to get around Samaria, but they didn't even want to travel through it because they didn't want to ever associate themselves with the Samaritans. That's who the Jews are calling Jesus. They reached into their bag and they pulled out the worst insult that they could. And it was a Samaritan. And you're a demon which is a little bit worse than that. Okay, how does Jesus respond here? This is what I'm, I'm fascinated by. Jesus' response here is essentially to say, I'm not gonna fight with you guys over who I am. I have one job and that is to honor my father. And at the end of the day, his judgment is all I care about. Do you see it there when, he, when Jesus responds? And, and I, th- I think that is this statement about God being the judge that leads him to say what he says next. Look at, look at just one more time. Look at 850, John 850. He says, yet I don't seek my own glory. Okay. So they're trying to say, this is who you are. This is who you are, Jesus. Jesus say, I'm not going to get into that. It's not my job to defend myself, to stand up here and defend myself before all of you. That's actually not why I came. I actually came to speak the truth that my father gave me to speak. And he says, I don't seek my own glory, but there is one who seeks it. Now, I think he means there is one who seeks my glory. There is one who glorifies me and that's my father, right? There is one who seeks it. And what does he say about him? And he is the judge. Uh Uh-oh. Jesus is now talking about judgment that's coming from the judge. Now look at what he says here. This is merciful. This is merciful considering what they just called him. Look at verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see 
death. And here's a sub point. If you're taking notes this morning, sub point is this. Number one, Jesus gives eternal life. It's not a tough, it's not something that we maybe don't know. It's something that he is clearly stating right here in this verse. Number one, Jesus gives eternal life. Specifically, he says, if you keep my word, you will not see death. That's his promise. Now, it's important to note the context here. What kind of death is he talking about? Is he talking about, he's talking about the death of judgment, right? He just talked about the judge. God is a judge. What kind of death happens when the judge judges you? That's what he means. But they're going to miss him completely. They're going to completely misunderstand what he's saying here. Because death is not what happens. You need to understand this in the scripture. Death is not what happens when your heart stops beating. Do you know that, Christian? Those of you who know your Bibles, read your Bibles and love your Bibles and believe the truth that is in your Bibles as revelation from God. Do you know that scripture itself does not teach that death is when your heart stops beating and the doctor declares that you're dead on the table? That is not death, according to scripture. In fact, there used to be a euphemism that the Christians would use early on in, the, in 2000 years ago. The first Christians, they would say, so-and-so has fallen asleep. Why? They didn't want to use the word death because they wanted to preserve the word death for what the Bible says death is. Now, it's true. The Bible will call that, when your heart stops beating, death at times. At times. Okay? But the Bible also clarifies something else. Now, the Jews made this mistake about what Jesus said. They believed that Jesus was talking about, if you believe me, if you obey my words, your heart will never stop beating. You will never actually die in the way we normally think of the word die. And the Jews thought, wow, he's, he's, saying, that we, he's saying that we can literally live forever, like fountain of youth style, like you're going to drink something from the fountain of youth and never die again. That's what they think he means right here. But look at how Jesus responds to, um, to them. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Now, let's just consider that there. This is their saying, okay, look, Abraham was the man right? He was the patriarch. He died. His heart stopped beating. He's in a grave somewhere. His body has decomposed. Sorry if I went too far with that. He, he, he's gone. And yet you're saying something different about you, but that isn't what Jesus means, is it? That isn't what he's talking about here. He means the kind of death that is the active judgment of God. That's death in the Bible, the active judgment of God. Now, why do I say active there? Why do I call it the active judgment of God? Well, because Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God in Genesis chapter three, God said, if you eat of that fruit from that tree, you will die. You guys know this story? Adam and Eve, God says, you'll die if you eat that fruit. And they eat the fruit anyways. And what happens because of that? A curse falls upon all mankind and all mankind dies because of that eating of that fruit. Sin entered the world through one man, the Bible says, and that was Adam and his wife, Eve. That's how sin came into the world. That is why death exists in the world. 
That is why your heart eventually stops beating and you die. It happened in Genesis 3. And we call this a curse, don't we? We say that a curse has fallen upon this because you weren't supposed to die. You were originally created by God. Adam and Eve were originally created by God and death was not supposed to be part of that equation. Now, I don't mean that God screwed up. What I do mean is that the original creation of Adam and Eve outside of sin was originally to be an eternal creation. They were to live with God forever, but a curse fell upon mankind. And that is why they died. And that is why you will die. And that is why many before you have died. We call it a curse. And the curse of death will get every one of us. Unless Jesus comes back before, which that's what I'm hoping for. That like he comes back to this earth and we're alive and we see him, no death. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Now that curse, what was that curse? It was a judgment, wasn't it? It was a judgment from God upon sort of all mankind, okay? And it affected and it will affect everyone, believer or unbeliever, it'll affect you. That judgment generally is upon you, whether or not you have put your trust in Jesus Christ or not, it is still going to affect you. So when a believer's heart stops beating, we say that they died, right? They just experienced the curse that was brought into the world through Adam and Eve. That's what, They just experienced it. Boom, there it is upon them. Adam and Eve's curse. And it was a form of judgment. But what was it? We call it passive judgment. We call it passive judgment. It fell upon Adam and Eve. God said, Adam and Eve, all of your children after you are going to die. At some point, their hearts are going to stop beating. They're going to be called dead. They're going to be in a ground somewhere. That's called the passive judgment of God. And it falls upon everyone. And we all have to deal with the fact that we live in a world with that. But there is another kind of death. And it happens after a person's earthly death. Okay. So after a person's earthly death, here's what Hebrews 9.27 says. It is appointed for man once to die. And after that comes judgment. After your earthly death, the Bible says that you will stand before God in judgment. And at that judgment, for those who do not know Christ, there is another death. And it is that death, which is eternal separation from God, from which no one can ever recover. Here's what Revelation 20 verse six says. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the, listen, second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And then we know that it's on into eternity after that. But notice that Revelation calls it the second death. Why is that? Because you've already died once, you stand before God, and then for those who are not in Christ, there is a second death that occurs, and that death is eternal. Who receives the second death? Look at Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So who, who receives this second death? Anyone whose name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life is thrown into the lake of fire, which Revelation says is the second death. So there is a death, friends. After this death, in this life, there is another death. Revelation 21.8, here's what it says, who, who goes there? But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, some of you are saying, oh, this is just getting heavy. Listen, friends, I have the same message I have every week. I have the same message I have every week. We will all stand before God one day. And if we stand before God with one single of our own sins upon us, that's worthy of judgment. God says, that's enough to separate you from me forever. And so what Christ did, and I just want to stop for a minute and make sure we understand the truth about this. What Christ says here in this text is he says, if you will put your trust in me, he says, obey, by the way. That's a way of putting our trust in him. You put your, oh, you, you obey someone who you've put your trust in. He says, if you obey me, if you obey my words, if you put your trust in me is my way of saying that, you won't see that second death. You will stand before God righteous because of what I did on the cross, which he hadn't done yet. He was on his way there. But he says, because of what I did, you will not see that second death and you will experience the righteousness of my life upon you so that God looks upon you and he says, this is the righteousness of my son that I see. And he says, enter into eternal life. You're not going to die. And so for the early Christians, they would say, so-and-so fell asleep. Why? Because the moment that death hit them, the moment it hit them, they were in God's presence, experiencing the joy of seeing him face to face. That's what it means to die, put that in quotes, as a Christian. That's what that means. Look at what the early Christians would say. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1555. Here's the song that they used to sing. I think this was a song, by the way, that Paul quotes here. They used to sing this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That was an ancient song from 2000 years ago that Christians used to sing. What does it mean? What does it mean? It says, you are going to die. Death, you're going to get them. But are you going to be victorious? No. Hey, death, you're going to sting them. But what happened? Your stinger is removed. You ever been, I don't know if you guys have ever been stung by an animal or something that where they've removed its stinger. Like I've known people, I, some people are strange, but they keep scorpions and they, they deep, I don't know, defang. That's not the right word. I don't know what the word is. They take the stinger off the scorpion so that they can keep scorpions around. And I'm sure the scorpion gets angry at them at some point and hits them with the, the back of its tail. But what happened? The stinger is removed. There's no venom. There's nothing in that hit. So when you die, Christian, you get hit by death. You get hit by it. But what does it say here? Where's your sting, death? Where'd it go? 
It doesn't affect you. You go into a moment for a moment in time. Your eyes shut and they open up and you are in the presence of the Lord. That death did not sting you. The venom did not go into you. It did not separate you from a holy God because you are in Christ. Paul says, what can separate us from God? Can death? That's one of the things he lists there. Can death? No. It does not separate us from a holy God. In fact, here's what God says about those who are in Christ when they die. Psalm 116, 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Can we just pause on that for a minute? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Some of you in the past few weeks have had family members die. I know because I've talked to you. Some of you have had moments where you've had to ache over someone that you've known. And I think every one of you that I've talked to, your family member has been a believer. They've put their trust in Christ and it was known by others that they had put their trust in Christ. You know what the Lord says about that right here? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. That moment was precious. Why? Because death now becomes the vehicle by which we go from being here to being with him. And I don't want us to fear that church. I do not want us to fear death. One of the most common things that we human beings experience is a fear of death. And I want us to to work hard to know God's word rather than the world around us and to let God's word be the main way in which we think so that we go, whenever that comes for me, and I don't know when it'll be, but whenever that comes for me, it's going to be simply the vehicle by which I go to glory with with my God. And I see Jesus Christ face to face for the first time ever. That's what I want. That should be what we want. And that doesn't make us masochistic or suicidal. That gives us a job to do until the Lord determines that our job here is done. So Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Not that your heart stops beating or that your heart never stops beating, but that you will not experience that death of judgment. Keep Jesus' word, put your trust in him, love him, and you will not face the second death of God's judgment. But the Jews didn't understand this. They thought Jesus was saying that their hearts would not stop beating if they kept his word. They mentioned Abraham because Abraham died a long time ago. Are you greater than Abraham? He's been dead forever. And they specifically ask if Jesus thinks he's greater than Abraham. Now, what does Jesus say? Or what do they say? Are you greater than our father Abraham? who died and the prophets died, who do you make yourself out to be? Now, when somebody asks you this, this is a bit of a trap, isn't it? Who do you think you really are? Do you think you're great? You ever had anybody ask you that question? Oh, do you think you're great? How do you answer that question? There's no way out of that that question is there. I remember I was in the police academy and everybody in the police academy, every student, every recruit has to take a turn in leadership in the police academy. So they, may, they give you your turn and you've got a couple days where you've got to lead the class. And I remember I was leading the class in the police academy. It was my turn to do so. And they called me in that these are the TAC officers. These are the ones that it's their job to yell at you. And they called me into their office one day and they said to me, Hedema, that's what they called me. <laughs> Do you think the class relies on you? 
and I'm standing there at attention, I'm not supposed to move, and I've got to to think of an answer, right? Now, if I answer yes, I do think the class relies on me. I'm making myself out to be an arrogant jerk. And if I say no, the class doesn't rely on me, well, now I'm shirking my responsibilities as the class leader. So there's no right answer to that question, and they know it. That's why they do that stuff. Because I'm supposed to sit there and fumble about, and then they have more reasons to yell at me, right? There is no good answer to that, and there's no good answer to what they ask Jesus here. They sort of trap him, don't they? Who do you think you are, Jesus? You think you're great? Now, what's the real answer to that? The real answer to that is he is great. He is the one who created them. And yet, Jesus is humble. So how's this going to work? How's Jesus going to answer this question if he's humble and yet he's also worthy of all glory and all praise? And they ask him, what do you think, Jesus? Are you great? Jesus answered, verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do not know him, and I, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So here's what Jesus responds. Ready? Verse 54. He doesn't glorify himself. The father glorifies him. That's a great answer to that question. Verse 55. The Jews don't know God the father, but Jesus does. So what is he going to boast in? What does Jesus boast? I know him. I know him and you don't. That's his boast. Verse 55, Jesus says, I can't lie, but he also doesn't glorify himself. Verse 56, Jesus is greater than Abraham because Abraham looked forward to see Jesus day and he rejoiced. Now this is the shocker, isn't it? Verse 56 is the shocker. I am greater than Abraham because he saw my day. What? The Jews are going He's the greatest of our patriarchs, and he looked forward to your day? And again, they're asking the question, who do you think you are? Now, what does that mean, though? And here's point number two, if you're taking notes. Jesus was promised from long ago. Abraham's story is found in Genesis 12. You guys can go read it there. It actually covers about 10 chapters from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22. And um, in those 10 chapters, God makes promises to Abraham. Uh, And those promises specifically have to do with Abraham's offspring, one of his children, that it would come from him. And one of his children, and specifically we see that's a male child, it's one of his sons, will remove the curse that's been affecting humanity since Genesis 3. Remember the curse that I just talked about that Adam and Eve brought on the world? There have been promises in the book of Genesis that at some point that curse would be removed and somebody would do it. Who was it going to be? And Abraham now gets a, he gets promises to him. Abraham, it's going to be one of your kids. It's going to be one of your offspring. They're going to be the ones who are going to lift that curse. Specifically, you can see it in Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18. Here's what God says to Abraham. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So we know it's a son. One of your sons, Abraham, is going to possess the gate of his enemies. He's going to take out the enemy that we have all been experiencing up until this point, Satan. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So one of your sons, everybody's going to be blessed through this son. 
Every nation of the earth is going to be blessed. And it's important to know what just happened in our story, right? God told Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, and to sacrifice him on a mountain. That's what God said. Take your son, Isaac, your only son, bring him up on that mountain. And I'm going to tell you what to do. I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham was about to obey, wasn't he? And an angel of the Lord told him to stop. And God provided a ram to be sacrificed instead of his son. And it's right after that, that God promises to Abraham that one of his offspring is going to possess the gates of his enemies and is going to bless the nations, as we saw right there in Genesis 22. Abraham got a picture of what was to come. And he rejoiced to know that at some point this curse would be lifted by one of his offspring that would come after him. And so Jesus says here that Abraham saw my day. He could see through that promise a day where one day that curse would be lifted. Sin would be no more. He saw my day and he rejoiced because that was true in me. That's what Jesus is saying right here. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, verse 58 and 59, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now we've talked about Jesus' use of the words, I am before. And I'm just going to turn you guys to other sermons to go into the depths of what I am means right there. But he said it in John 8, 24. And when he said it then, back then, a couple verses ago, the Jews weren't quite sure whether they heard Jesus right or not. They kind of respond by going, wait, what did you just say? And I don't, I don't mean that they said those exact words. They said, wait, who are you? What? I didn't quite hear that right. What did you just say? He's used the words I am before and they weren't sure. Now they're sure. Now they've heard it. They know they're sure and they're ready to kill him for it. Why? Because the words ego a me in the Greek, I am, which gets translated I am, when used by themselves are a clear claim to be God. Okay. You don't use those words. You don't just say, walk up to somebody and say, I am. Now, to be fair, ego a me is a normal, I am hungry. I am thirsty. I am here. I am JD. I am, you know, I, you can use the words as long as you use them with other words. Just don't let them stand alone. Otherwise they mean something very, very specific. Isaiah 41, four, God, Yahweh God of the Old Testament says this, who has be, uh, performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am. That's God in the Old Testament declaring himself to be ego emi in the Greek. Here is Jesus repeating those words, ego emi in front of these Jews, and they know exactly what he means. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus himself hid himself and went out of the temple. We started this morning by saying that Jesus is offering eternal life promised from long ago because he is God. And that is the central claim of Christianity. That is really at the heart of the gospel. That is at the heart of what I want to bring you, not just on one particular Sunday, but every Sunday. 
I want you to know the heart of what it is that we believe. And that claim that Jesus is God, that he offers eternal life, and that eternal life has been promised from ages past is a central claim, maybe the central claim of all of Christianity. And it deserves a response from you and I. It deserves a response one way or another. Perhaps you hear that truth this morning and you say, I don't believe that for a second. I don't believe it. I want nothing to do with Jesus. And you will be responding very similarly to these Jews, right? Because if somebody is claiming to be God and you say, I don't buy that for a second, that person is not a medium. They're not an okay person. They're a terrible person. Anybody today that would claim that level of deity, if you didn't believe them, they're immediately not just suspect to you, they're immediately evil. And they're worthy maybe to be put away, locked away. Of course, today we wouldn't throw stones at them, would we? We would probably lock them away in an insane asylum if we had those, right? And if that's who Jesus is to you, then man, let your response be known. That's my recommendation. Let your response be known. Or perhaps like some of the Jews in the crowd, you see the miracles that Jesus has done. You see the prophecies about Jesus from the Old Testament you see that he alone seems to understand the human condition in the way that he speaks better than anyone who has ever come before. And perhaps your eyes are opened to who he is. So you believe him and you put your full trust in him and to him, to you, he is Lord. And to, he, to you, that claim that he had made, I am, in other words, I am God, is true. And if that is you, then worship so if that is you that wants to reject him, then reject him. And if that is you that wants to worship and wants to, to receive what he says, then receive him and worship. Those are the options that are presented to each and every human being on this planet. There is a claim that Christianity is making that says Jesus is God and he alone has eternal life. That's it. We can't shy from that claim. We can't water that claim down. That is the claim. And it is through him alone that we can have our sins forgiven and we can actually be saved and stand before God as righteous one day. And Jesus is either lying and we're lying or else he is telling the truth. What you must not do, I'm pleading with you. If you're hearing my voice this morning, if you're hearing my voice on the camera, what you must not do is stand idly by on the sidelines until you one day learn the truth one way or the other. You cannot stand by and learn the truth only once you stand in the judgment that you never knew him and he truly was all that he said he was. Don't stand in the middle on this. Now I'm getting this from scripture, by the way. Revelation chapter three, Jesus himself says, I would rather you be hot or cold. Why is that? Because it's easier to have a conversation with somebody that says, I don't believe, than it is to have somebody who is pretending to believe or pretending to stand in the middle because we don't even know what to do there. We don't even know how to approach that person. In some ways, that person is what the Bible calls a hypocrite. 
I don't mean, I don't mean to insult you. I'm not just trying to insult you if that's the case, but to pretend to be one thing and to do another is what the Bible calls a hypocrite. I'm asking that we declare one way or another, are we for him or are we against him? Perhaps you've been nice about it. Perhaps you've never wanted to offend anyone, but you've rejected him nonetheless. Friends, take a stand for Jesus. Believe this claim. That's my encouragement to you. Believe it. Let your eyes be open to it. That's my prayer. That your eyes would be open to this, is that, that this is the truth about who he is. Or if you will not, stand against him and let it be known to everyone else around you that you are against him. And that at least helps the church to know how we can, how we can have discussions and further conversations that one day you might come around. We would love that. We would love to have open dialogue and discussion. But don't stand in the mushy middle. You will deceive yourself and everyone else around you. And what I long for is to see Echo Church and everyone here who's under this tent and who will be under us, uh, this tent or our roof later on, that they would know the truth and they would believe the truth and they would live their lives obeying the one, obeying Jesus who says, if you obey my words, you will have eternal life and not taste death. I want that for every single person here. And I pray that that would be true for everyone hearing my voice or anyone else's voice who comes up to this pulpit at Echo Church. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We ask now that your power and your Holy Spirit would come to fill our hearts, to give us faith, to believe these truths. Jesus claimed, I am. Jesus claimed, if you obey me, you will not taste the death of judgment. God, that's, we believe that's true. Help now those who maybe are struggling with that, who have honest questions about that, but who don't want to offend or don't want to be embarrassed or, 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 or are struggling with unbelief and that they, they feel like that's somehow shameful. God, I pray we would be open with who we are. I pray, God, that your, uh, that, that, that your spirit would so lead us to seek out the questions that we have. Because the enemy wants to come along and say, well, those questions can't be answered because this is a sham. This is a fraud. This is false. But God, we know that's a lie. And we know that there are so many questions that are answered from your word. And I pray, God, that you would help those who are struggling to know the truth. God, would you open their eyes that they would see you and love you and walk with you all the, de- the rest of the days they have here until they go to sleep and they wake up instantaneously in your presence. We long for that day, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.